Hey everybody, I'm Anna McEwen. And now for Bob Switzer with the epic narrative. All right, all right. We we are back. We are back. This is this is a uh, really fun chapter in that it's just it's uh, not chapter. I shouldn't say a section. Uh, chapter four. It's this is a bizarre story. Very, very few times have I heard this preached in a in a service. Um, a few times I've heard it dealt with because we're doing like a book study on the life of Moses. I don't know if you remember. Um, man, there was a there was a like a massive study of the life of Moses. I think it was called Experiencing God. It came with a workbook and a regular book. I honestly I forget it. I'm standing here remembering it. I didn't do any research before I opened my mouth and started talking. But I remember that book being uh, used, at least in in the circles I was in at the time, which would have been a pretty conservative world uh, worldview and a conservative picture of God. They definitely would have pictured God as a killer, not you know the radical goodness of God that I currently live in, uh, where God looks like Jesus. So I'm guessing they probably approach this uh, this story differently than I'm approaching it today. But generally speaking, most people don't even approach this story. They don't they don't talk about this what I'm going to call a paragraph. I mean, it's verses 18 to to 31 where Moses goes from Midian all the way back to Egypt, which again is no short trip. But but we cover it quickly, and we cover this bizarre night in the middle of the of the trip or the first well probably not probably the first night of the trip where where it's just, it gets all crazy. But this passage, because of how crazy it is, it really exposes what you believe about God. Like, is God a killer? Uh, Do you believe that he's going to come for you if you're a sinner? Do you think, now, now I do understand, I I, want to give people the opportunity to separate. I do understand that sin kills. I get that. But do we believe that God kills the sinner? And you can say, well, God has the right to kill the sinner because sin is wrong and sin is bad and sin is evil and God is holy and God is God is righteous and God is true and he can't have sin in his, in his uh, world, so therefore he has every right to kill a sinner uh, because, you know, he's God. And it's, uh, I, okay, 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 okay. I, as I've said before, I get that. You used to preach it, studied it. I know, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. But. Do you really think that God shows up in the middle of the night to wipe out people who have sinned? Does he really show up? Does his does does God does God have an angel of death to do his killing for him? Which is another way that some people get around this. Well, God doesn't do it, but God has an angel of death that he sends and he sends this angel of death and the angel kills people, but he's only doing what God tells him. But God doesn't actually kill anyone. Like, it, okay, you, you really you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna play a theological tightrope on that. You, that's 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 your thin red line, huh? All right. Well, you know, you you have to do something. You have to do something with the fact that that it looks like God kills. Either you accept it or you don't. And and currently, as you know, the epic narrative, we don't accept it. We don't accept it. We accept that God is good and he looks like Jesus and Jesus didn't kill. Jesus didn't give sickness. Uh, so Jesus doesn't give disease. So who does? 
It has to be the enemy. Because if God does it, then God does have an angel of death that he has at his bidding. Then God does have sickness that he can send down from heaven. Then God does have disease that he can send down from heaven. He, you know, uh, is God going to throw those things at people that he loves in order to hold them in line, in order to control their behavior, in order to keep them from making a bad decision? Is that the God we serve? Because logically, you have to ask yourself the next question. You know, is, is, you know, if what, what, what you have to, my thoughts, uh, wait, I, I'm sorry, I'm stuck on my notes. Hang on. Dun, da, da. Right, okay, sorry. So I wrote in my notes in smaller letters, which was hard to read from where I'm standing because I'm standing, anyways, it doesn't matter where I'm standing. I was, I was standing far enough away that it wasn't making sense. But yeah, the logical question is, so, so God is God. My thoughts aren't his thoughts. He is good. He's the judge. So he can do whatever he wants. If we say that, then we have to also ask, is God all light in whom there is no darkness at all? And is death for you a part of light? Is God a God of life and goodness only? Or sometimes is he not the God of goodness and life only? And if your answer is anything different than yes, God is all good, all life, all, uh, uh, you know, all light, all the time, then at some level you're having a dualistic approach to God. It's esoteric in your approach to God, which is actually something that the, that the enemy would want you to have. Because if you are the one who brings sickness and disease and death, and you're trying to tear down the image of the, of the one who is all light, all good, and all life all the time, then you, then you would want to, in essence, divide people's picture of who that God is. So you can have a loving God who also does dark things. You can have a dualistic God that is, that is a concept um, that I believe Jesus came to destroy. I think Jesus came to, to show us on earth what God looks like in heaven. I think he came to perfectly represent his father. I think he came to combat the dualistic approach that so many people have to God, which is, well, he is God and he's all good, except for when he's not good, in which case that's okay because his, his badness is still goodness because he's good and can only be good. And his death isn't really death. It's, it's a different thing that, that causes, like, like it's, it's dualistic. You literally split your mind down the middle, and I believe the principle that God put in his creation is that a dualistic mindset is unstable in all its ways because you don't know which God is going to show up. You have to live your life on edge. Did I do enough to keep God from killing me today? Did I do enough to keep God from giving, you know, for making me sick today. And then when you do get sick, you have to say, okay, what do I have to do to switch over to the good side of God again? 
because you know God is good, or you lie there in your sickness and in your lack of yeah, in your lack. We'll just leave it at that. You lie there in your lack and you say, I deserve this. For some reason, God knows. God knows. God knows I deserve this. And then you mutter something like, and and he is good all the time. But that dualism is not is not of heaven. God says he's all good and all light and all life all the time. And you can't play games with those words. It's 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 all or not. And if it's not, you you have questions to answer. These are questions I had to answer too. Trust me. My journey out of out of what I would call um <laughs> conservative, it didn't matter whether it was conservative religion or charismatic, free-flowing religion. It's religion's religion. And that's why I know what I'm doing now, what, what you're hearing on the Epic Narrative, is radical in that religion, which would probably constitute about 99% of the churches, regardless of denomination, they operate under religion. And in doing so, man, what I'm saying is it's it changes everything for them. And they have a system and they have marketing and they have they have income and they have manipulation and they have they have whatever it is that that, that keeps them functional would change if they had a singular approach to God. So I'm glad that you guys give a listen. I'm glad you guys at least take the time to consider what it is that we throw out here for you to listen to. And I say we loosely because it's just me standing in a bedroom of a RV currently doing a recording for you so that you can hear it. And yes, I do have Bob in my head who is a constant companion. (laughs) Oh, glory. Uh, So Moses, (laughs) after this powerful experience with his loving God, he goes home. Now, again, I don't know how long. Could have probably been about a week between his time there in the bush and getting home. So let's just read the verses because as you know and I know, sometimes I forget to do that and then we just roll on through and I get all tripped up. So here we go. Uh, Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. And Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons, he put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. That was a wise move, Moses. (laughs) Uh, The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before the Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you the power to do so. But I will harden his heart so they will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you have refused to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. You, You do understand now why we have so much to wrestle with today. In this, in this passage, right? Because is, this looks really bad. This is one of those passages where when I read it, 
I have that conversation with, with God. It's like I, 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 I sit there, I meditate, and I say, Lord, you have a serious problem right now. <laughs> if you're all good, this then you have a serious problem. So anyways, uh, sorry, on with the verse. See, Bob's like, on with the verses. Yes. Uh, <laughs> all right, verse, verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. What? Out of nowhere? <laughs> but Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off the foreskins, her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are the bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. Ugh, this is brutal. This is, this, oh, sorry. All right, later. Okay, get into it later. Then the Lord said, to Aaron, go into the wilderness and meet Moses. So he went and he met Moses at the mountain of God and he kissed him and Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had said, sent him to say and also about the signs he had committed, uh, commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people and they believed and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and that he had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. Okay, okay. <laughs> I know. <laughs> we got to jump into this. I have so much to do. I know. It's, this is, no, but this is a really good, it's a good passage. But you can see where, like, it's also bizarre. This is a bizarre passage. And why, you know, a Sunday morning service, when you got 20 minutes to make people feel good about themselves, this is not the one that you go after, generally speaking. So he goes home. That's the first place. He goes back to Jethro. Like I said, it could have taken a week to get there. And he talks with Jethro. Um, probably over a meal, I would imagine. Several meals, several days. He would have been leaving with Jethro's daughter and his grandchildren. He wasn't telling... This was, this was, this was humility. This was something where... What we would call following the favor of God. Like, you know, you sense, you believe God's calling you to do something, and then you follow him, and you go where the doors open, and and sometimes you come up against cultural things that have to, you have to go before certain people. You have to ask permission or apply for jobs or make phone calls, and you and you wait to see if favor is there. And if favor's on it, then you move on it. Or you, or you take the next step. And that's what Moses is doing here. He speaks with Jethro. He's saying, listen, I'd like to take your daughter and your grandchildren, and I want to take them away, probably never to return. I'm going to take family and probably never come back. To go, as he quoted Moses here, to go to my own people to see if any of them are still alive. Moses is making a claim here. This is a definitive word. He's saying, listen, I love being a part of your family, but you're not my people. My people are still in the Delta region of Egypt. And the Lord's asked me to go back and see them. And he probably told them all the things that the Lord had said to him. And he probably talked about the burning bush. And he, he gave, like Jethro would have totally tracked with all of this because Jethro is a very spiritual person. And as I said uh, before, traditionally, he's now a teacher of, of the God of Moses and of the Israelites. He's, he's now a, a follower of Yahweh and somebody who has repositioned himself 
as a priest and leader in that region and is, is now considered a priest of, of the Midianites. And Jethro says, go. In other words, he gives his blessing. Jethro physically knows that this is going to cost him. But he doesn't, he doesn't, you know, pull the selfish card here. He doesn't, he doesn't look at his, at in essence, his children, his child, and say, I don't know how I'll ever live without you. I can't tell you the number of parents that I think hamstring their children or at least cut their Achilles heel and make it very difficult for their children to really go where God sends them because they're going to hurt their mother's feelings. They're going to break their father's heart. This is this is a hard this is a hard filter to to move in as a parent because you do love your children. I can't tell you the number of times we we just finished Thanksgiving at the time of this recording, right? We were able to be with uh, one of our kids, but but we weren't able to have them all. Like there is there is power and blessing in all being together. I totally understand that, but you don't want to hamstring your children and tell them in essence you know, please don't leave, don't leave, don't leave. And at some level, manipulate them emotionally by saying, promise me you'll never leave. You know, the kid's like nine years old. Promise me, oh, you'll never leave your, your dad. Oh, don't ever leave me. Oh, don't ever leave your mother. Oh, we're going to be so sad if you ever leave me. I'm just going to cry and cry. Like, I've, I've heard parents say this to their children, and I think, be careful, man, be careful. So uh, I think, you know, Jethro, when he says go, like I think Jethro understands he's, he's not holding his children back. He also, I think, probably knew this, this day was going to come. That in all of his aged wisdom, he looked at the life of Moses and said, there's no way this guy stays here forever. Now, maybe after 40 years, he's thinking, I might have been wrong about that. So, you know, I kind of think as Moses is telling the story, Joseph, Joseph, Jethro is sitting here going, ah, there it is. It just took a lot longer than I thought. But there it is. I kind of knew this was coming. I knew this was at least possible. I knew Moses had more to do and more to give, and and God wasn't going to waste all of that. I do think I do think a lot of times people that have a lot to give rush ahead of God, and it is very hard not to do that. It is very very difficult not to not to start something up, and I suppose some of that depends on the type of leaders you are or what how you are wired internally. And there's some who just, you know, struggle with it far more than others. But there is a waiting period, I think, for everyone that does something great for God. I'm not saying everyone who has some some great ministry. I do think that there's a lot of people that have started ministries and churches and have done great things because they have paid for it. They have paid for the marketing. They've paid for the direction. They've, they've you know, they did their research. They put their church in the perfect environment or their ministry in the perfect place. And they, they have the, you know, they... They pay the right people to raise the amount of money, yada, yada, yada. So I'm not saying all great ministries have to wait to launch, but I do believe those people who do great things often have a period of waiting. I I have heard it many times from from noted people. They all seem to have a, a constant, a consistent in their life that talks about, we'll call it a 
some call it a wilderness period or desert period. And I don't think that means a time of emptiness and loneliness. I just think it means it's time of of learning where you you have to know your next step, but you don't know your final destination. And not that it's not final is final. Nothing's final in a journey, but and 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 our life here is a journey. So I get that part. But I'm just I'm just saying that there's a lack of under of knowledge as to where you're headed. You just know, okay, well this is where I go next. And that's what I talk about when I talk about the favor. Like, this is what I know to do currently. I know to do this, and this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to keep plugging along. I'm going to keep asking questions. I'm going to keep making phone calls and keep making contacts and see where God leads next. All right. Sorry, this one feels very personal uh, for me uh, in my current state. Now, <laughs> I certainly hope verse 24 is a personal, but anyways, we'll move on. <laughs> uh, verses 19 and 20, um, Lord says, go back to Egypt for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife's sons, put them on a donkey, started back to Egypt, and he took the staff of God in his hand. Now, um, this is kind of a, a recap of the, of the caravan, right? You... You can't you can't put this together in a in a day. This takes a week or so to prepare, to settle. You have to he had to settle all of his accounts. He had to make contacts with all the various merchants that he had trades with. He had to let them know that he was no longer going to be the point person. He had to find other people to be in charge of the point, to be the point person. It could have been Jethro, it could have been one of his other relatives. I don't know if any of the sisters are married again at this point. It's been 40 years. I'm guessing all of them have husbands and multiple children at this point. So who takes over? Who takes, you know, who steps in charge? I'm sure Jethro part of this this conversation support is part of this conversation everybody's you know there's there's adjustments being made uh, it, it, it's, it takes more than a week but at least a week at least because again it's not like you can make phone calls you have to you have to send messages you have to make trips you have to have contacts it's 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 big it's a big deal to say he put his wife and, and children on a donkey this is this is no let's let's be 40 years of life he's got to he's got to compress into a caravan. That's like us moving out of whatever we were in, 2400 square foot house, 2 acres of land, you know, a, a, a two car garage, two sheds, a pool. Like we had this we had this gorgeous place. And when the Lord called us on the road, it was like, okay, now we have 300 square feet of an RV and everything's got to fit. We also have a beautiful pickup truck, which had to house kind of our day-to-day stuff, our stuff that you need to travel with. It, it was, it was, yeah, it was uh, an adventure, just unpacking. And I can't tell you the number of things we left behind for the person who bought the house because it was like I, nobody wanted, none of our kids wanted it, and none of them really lived near nearby enough for us to bring it to them. And then it was like, all right, if nobody wants it. Like, what do we do with it? Well, we can load it up and take it to, you know, Savers or Goodwill or just see if the person coming in wants it. And they did. They literally wanted everything. They were like, leave anything you want after they had they had toured the house twice. So we did. We left. You could say, well, you left thousands of dollars. Yeah, we did. We did. It didn't bother us. It, it really doesn't. And and I it, when when you are doing what God wants you to do, it's not a matter of, 
oh my God, I need to, I need to scrap and save. It's not a survival mindset. The the kingdom of heaven is not about surviving. It's it's about this this absolute knowledge that God's got you. And it may look like you're barely surviving, but it only looks like that to people who don't know your heart and your connection. But Moses has a downsize, you know. It, you have it, it takes a long time. We've been a part of the RV community for a while. Like some people just, you know, walk away from it all. Some people need to touch and see everything before they say goodbye to it. I don't know what Zipporah was like. I don't know what Moses was like, but I know it takes time either way. He's still unsure of his purpose or why it's him. He takes the staff, which is noted. Okay, we want to make sure that he takes this because it is, I think it's that anchor point for him. I don't think he needs the staff. I don't think there's anything spiritual about having a staff, but he needs the staff to remind him of his encounter with God. Because an encounter with God is never designed to be maintained. Like you don't, you have an encounter at, with God, whether it be at a conference or a, or a church service or or a you know a campfire or whatever, that encounter is designed to be impactful. The journey is designed to take time, and he's on a journey, but he has a reminder of the impact of God's presence, of His love, of His hope. It's it also kind of gives him some security when he's when he's walking closer and closer back to Egypt. So then God in chapter in verses 21 through 23, he gives basically a, a, a quick overview. You're gonna show up. <laughs> uh, you're gonna show up. When you return to Egypt, you're gonna perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you. Oh, please hang on to this. He's given you the power to do. Okay. These are these are the power these are the things he's given him the power to do. He's given him the power to rod into snake, hand into leprosy, water into blood. None of those involve killing people. That's the power that he's given Moses to do. Those are the signs that he's given Moses to do. Before the elders, well before Aaron, before the elders and before Pharaoh. He's going to do these signs multiple times. Now, I know what happens. I know about the 10 plagues. I don't believe those were the signs that God gave Moses to do. And we'll get into that later. Then he says, hmm, he says this, I will harden the heart of Pharaoh so that he will not let my people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel, Lord of Israel, my first is my firstborn. Israel is my firstborn. And I told you, let my son go so he can worship me. But you refuse, so I will kill your firstborn. This, this sounds devastatingly nasty for God to play these kind of games. He's literally using Pharaoh as a puppet. He's saying, I'm going to harden his heart, and then I'm going to and then I'm going to say, look at what you did. You you hardened your heart, so now I'm going to kill you. Or your first, oh, sorry, not you. I'm going to kill your firstborn son because you won't let my firstborn son go. So I'm going to, like, tit for tat. Like, you think you're big and bad. Watch how big and bad I am. Like, really, does God, is God just not out of junior high yet? 
Is he like not even not even that? Is he like eight years old? Like what is what kind of mindset do you think this is? Do you really think this is an all loving God? Come on, people. Well, we got to break this down then because, man, that's what it looks like. It does. It does look like that. So we have to go. We have to. You cannot ignore. You cannot ignore that this is translations, which involve translators, which involves their own filters or the requirements of the publishing company that they're working for. There are filters that go into translations. There are choices that you can make when you translate a word. We've done it hundreds of times on the Epic Narrative where we've looked at the word and we've said, wait a minute, you could translate this, one, this you know, that God is angry and does this, or you could translate it the same word differently and it's still okay. So let's look at this. I will, Pharaoh will hear you and refuse. Huh. <sighs> So the word harden equals the word strengthen. So why does what does that what does that mean to strengthen? Most a Pharaoh will strengthen his heart. See, God understands. I believe God knows that pride or the strength of Pharaoh's heart. He understands the results of being prideful or strong of heart. And he knows and is, in essence, predicting the most logical choices that Pharaoh's going to make. But he still gives Pharaoh the choice to make them. He does not orchestrate the choice. So is predicting the most possible, the most probable, sorry, outcome does not mean that he is orchestrating the outcome. God doesn't want the most probable results. He knows what is highly likely. And he knows what will happen if he chooses pride and, in essence, harden his heart. If he chooses to strengthen his heart, he knows what that's going to open the enemy up to do. He knows what the enemy is trying to do. He knows what the enemy can't wait to do. He knows all the ways that the people of Egypt have submitted themselves to the, to the evil darkness in the worship uh, community that they're in. And he says, I know what's going to happen. I don't want it to happen, but I know what's going to happen. And this is the way it's going to happen. Now, also remember, God, Moses is rewriting these events after the fact, and he's rewriting them from his perspective as well. So this is where we choose which way we're going to look at this. Are we going to choose our God that is good, or are we going to choose our God that is that is a puppet master and a murderer? I know, I know you've been you've been told, many of us have been told that's the word of God. You cannot change the word of God. That is the word of God. You must trust the word of God. You must go with the word of God. These are the words of God. These are the words of God. You cannot go outside the word of God. The word of God says this. I know. And yet, and yet, and I know some of you are already, you know, will freak out or your friends would. I'm guessing if you're listening to season three of, of the Epic Narrative, you're not freaking out anymore. But, but this is what, like, you can't look at the English translation 
of, in essence, the third round of translations from the original text and say, this is the inerrant word of God. I believe it's inspired 100%. But I believe that people who had options chose options to make God look like a killer because they believed, I'm not doubting their motive, but I believe they believed that this was the truest, truest translation of who God is. And I don't know why they chose not to look at the life of Jesus but here we are. So is God going to kill all the firstborn? Or does God know the result of what pride is going to do to man? He knows. Does he know the desire of Satan to destroy all of God's image on earth? To destroy his creation, to destroy life, to destroy freedom. And all that he desires... Is that what the enemy's after? And does God understand that there is a battle going on here? And there's a battle not just for his people, but for all people. Remember, I remember not, you know, we talked about it. We talked about the fact that I believe God's plan was let's send all my people out into the out to the mountain to worship. And from that place, they will re, you know, I will reveal, in essence, through them, they will reveal to the world. What happens when a people worships God? I believe God wanted to pour out on them supernatural miracles of not only health, but also wealth. I think he wanted to show the world the provision that could come from from a unified nation worshiping him. And that that would have revolutionized Egypt because they were a nation that worshiped. They just worshiped dozens of gods. But if the, if the nation of Egypt saw what was happening to the nation of the Hebrews and said, wow, we could have, if we could do that, that's who we'd worship. And they would have joined them in worship and there would have been two nations following Yahweh. I think that was the, the, the role that God wanted the, the world to get on. To in essence bring all nations to his people to learn and influence their worship And ultimately, all the world would worship God because you become like what you worship. He wants all of us to be the mirror image of who we were created to be way back in the beginning when our image and destiny and purpose were were pure and seen for the first time. So all of that is going on. And then evidently they they hit this road. Now, some people believe that this crazy night, this insane crazy night occurs the first night when they hit the road. And he's no longer, he's, he's removed himself from the family of Jethro. Other people believe that this is when, this is the first night in which he has crossed the boundary slash border of Egypt. And he's now under the influence of the principalities of the nation of Egypt. That's where I think that this occurs. I believe it happened when he crossed that boundary. I believe that the enemy has been waiting for Moses to return because they have permission to kill him under those bounds if he's done anything outside of the you know, the principles that God had laid out that said, listen, if you're going to follow me, these are the principles. If you're in covenant with me, 
If you're part of my family, this is what you do. And one of those things was to circumcise your sons. And again, Egyptians also circumcised their people. It's not... It was not an unknown practice amongst many many of uh, tribes and nations. Not all of them, but many of them had circumcision. This was not a new thing, but it was a sign. This was the sign. He's like, if you're going to be in covenant with me, this is what you do. So Moses had been circumcised because he was a Hebrew and an Egyptian, but his sons had it. So, in the middle of all this, Zipporah would have been aware that her sons were never circumcised. And her sons were what? Oh, they were like 40 years old, more or less, at least in their late 30s. So, they're at at a lodging place, which would have been like a caravan rest area, maybe outside of a village, maybe in a village, maybe in their own little tent city. Amongst others, they were at an oasis. I don't know. But it says uh, the Lord met with Moses and was going to kill him. He's like, you're going to die. No, I just don't think God does this. But I do think, I do think that the enemy did. The enemy had permission. He's like, yes, Moses is back under our covering. We can wipe him out because we have an on-ramp. So many times, like, the enemy uses legalism, the legal the legal um, wording of things. He understands what covenant is. He knows that Moses' sons are out of covenant because they're not circumcised. So the enemy, I believe, shows up, and he uses the lack of covenant obedience, circumcision, to access Moses and make him so ill that he knows He's going to die. He's so ill that Moses literally can't physically perform what is required in order for him and his sons not to die. The enemy understands what what kind of choice the Lord is going to bring in from the outside world, from outside the boundaries of Egypt. He says, I can't, I, like, He's surprised. He's like, okay, I need I need to wipe this guy out. And he has an access point. The sons have been circumcised. Moses has, has disobeyed the covenant, broken the covenant. I can get in here. And he gets in, and he makes Moses so sick. And as soon as Moses get, falls ill, Moses knows exactly what's going on. He's like, oh. And he tries to get up, but he can't. His stomach hurts. He's got a fever. His his muscles ache. He literally can't move. If you've ever been that sick, you know exactly what's going on. And in the moment, he understands the darkness that's upon him. And he knows he should have followed through. He should have kept his sons in the covenant of his people. But at the time, he was creating a new life. He was starting a new life. He didn't think it was that necessary. He didn't think he'd ever go back. He figured, what's that? It's not going to matter. It's really not going to matter. It clearly doesn't matter. After years, it doesn't matter. How? Why would it matter? But it does matter. And the enemy's the one who calls him on it. And the enemy comes after him to kill him. And he makes him that sick that quickly. And the enemy is, loves the pain. He loves and, you know, cackles at the, uh, at the, at the, at the emotional stress that he puts Moses under. 
But I believe it's also because the enemy was surprised. I think he believed that he had successfully removed Moses from the equation. He had successfully removed um, a, quote, hero or savior of the people out of the equation, and he probably had continued to remove future heroes and saviors of God's people out of the equation. This person was way off somewhere, and he was never going to return, and if he ever did return, then in essence, well, we'll worry about it at that point. I think this came out of the blue. I don't think the enemy saw it coming. This happens a lot, I think, to the enemy. He overplays his hand. He's also full of pride and arrogance, and he misses things. He misses uh, relational details because he's not a relational being like God is. So she, step, she being Sephora, the wife, steps in and performs the, this, this task on her son. She gra- grabs a flint knife and cuts off her son's foreskins. This, this is, wow, like that had to be a, a conversation with your mother, right? <laughs> I mean, oh, middle of the night, Moses wakes up sick as a dog, can't move, and he realizes this is a spiritual attack. Now, I do know people who get sick and think every every sickness is a spiritual attack, and and they get very dramatic about it. I I uh, I don't think there's no need for this kind of drama every time you get a stubbed toe, but but fine, fine. I don't think God did to you either. Sometimes you just you know stub your toe, but. But clearly there was something unique about this and Moses knew exactly what was going on and he finally gets out the words to the Zipporah. She grabs the knife and she runs to her son's tent. Son, like wakes up, hey mom, what's the problem? Your dad is deathly ill, I need to do something. You remember for years years ago we talked about the fact that you were never circumcised? Well, I need to circumcise you right now. It's the only way to save your father. Wait, what? I, no. Give it to me. <laughs> I don't know how, how else you say that. No, whip, you know, bring, get, lay it here. I don't, I don't know. It's a bizarre, it's bizarre. Like all the different scenarios and different conversations go through my head so fast right now. Like it's hard for my head. It's hard for my voice to, to articulate, but have fun imagining this, right? So, so the first guy gets clipped, zing, that's cut off. She keeps the skin and goes to the next tent, wakes him up. Hey, you got to get up. Your father's deathly ill. I just circumcised your brother. I need to circumcise you. It's the only way to stop what's happening. He's going to die if you don't do it. Wait, you just what? And then like, I picture like the brother, you know, kind of limping in with, with uh, a gauze or whatever cloth uh, being held in the spot where the cut was made. And he looks, you know, there's, he looks at his brother. He's like, yeah, seriously, bro. Like, <laughs> Let mom <laughs> cut, your, cut your foreskin. I, I just, <laughs> somebody's got to make a movie of this. <laughs> oh, man. So he whips his out and zing, zing, that's done. And now the two of them are, you know, got olive oil or something on it, some essential oils to ease the pain, the cloth, and they're limping, and you know, they their mother runs, but they're limping over to their father's tent. They're concerned about their father's health. Now, maybe she, she knew what to do because she had always kind of opposed circumcision. Maybe it wasn't something they did in the tribes of Midian. Maybe that's why, maybe, I mean, somehow she knew, she knew. 
I don't think Moses was in the position to give her a lesson as to why they needed to be done. She clearly knew beforehand and probably had known for years. And now, clearly, the night was the night. So she did it. Um, and she also understood, I believe, because of Moses, that this, this had to be done to stop Moses from dying. So she did. She runs to his tent and she puts it on his feet. She signified by putting it on his feet that this was, well, she says, this is, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. She says, this is a, this is a covenant. This is a blood covenant. This is a blood covenant that, that's between us and between God. We are your family. We are connected. We are of Yahweh. And when doing that, she therefore cut off <laughs> the access point from the enemy. And Moses was immediately better. And the enemy let him alone. Now, I do understand, from Moses' perspective, God did this. God made him sick and God left him alone. And there's, I think, many people, because of the way the, the goodness of God works, because the goodness of God is always there, they get involved, they get themselves open up to bad things from the enemy, or they get themselves involved in bad circumstances, and then good things come out of those circumstances, and they say, see, God did those bad things in order to do good things, and I've gone over it a thousand times. I don't think God plays that kind of puppet master. Meanwhile, back at the ranch in Egypt, the Lord had said to Mo uh, Aaron, go out in the wilderness and meet Moses. So he went out and met Moses at the mountain of God, and he kissed him which evidently is several days' journey. So Aaron's been on his way. And Aaron gets out there, and, and Moses and him have this long conversation all about God's plan and all that God had said to him. And, and of course, they, they, you know, they loved seeing each other. They hadn't seen each other in 40 years. The last time you know, Aaron saw, saw Moses, it had to be even before he killed uh, the taskmaster. So all he's had is rumor and innuendo and curiosity, like where did you go and how long you been there? Like this conversation had to go all night long. But Aaron begins to um, uh, understand his role. He understands that his role is to be a mouthpiece for Moses because Moses can't speak fluently. And Aaron, Aaron receives that role. Now, evidently, because of Aaron's position as, a, as high priest, he had freedom to move about the country of Egypt even to this day. And again, we've talked about the fact that in a, in a slave system, you still have to have a hierarchy so that the people slash slaves have some form of covering that the elites who own the slaves can talk to and work through and try to... Um, it just... It just perpetuates it perpetuates racism it perpetuates uh, uh, slavery it perpetuates that that hierarchical mindset and that's what that's what dictators always want so anyways the priest had this freedom so he was able to go out and meet uh, Moses without you know worrying about his status he listens to his his brother he gets all done and and it's uh I I think he moves on uh, quickly. 
he assembles the elders, he, and then they wait for Moses. Moses shows up a few days later. I, I don't know how he gets, I, I mean, I know the borders weren't walled up, but evidently because of Aaron's covering, Moses was able to walk into Egypt, and maybe because of the way he looked or the fact that no one really cared anymore, 40 years later, the the his political enemies are dead or don't or gone because of a, of the new pharaoh which means they're probably dead the new pharaoh could care less that he killed the taskmaster years ago i imagine there's some taskmasters that might have a few different things to say but but it's not like there was a general announcement like hey moses is in the country it just kind of he just kind of walked in maybe he walked in at night and by the time anybody really found out about it which would have been days later when he goes to the pharaoh Again, nobody really cared. And the fact that he was still alive, maybe that sent off this kind of zinger, like, well, you see, he always was favored of the gods. He was supposed to die in the Nile, and he didn't die in the Nile. And then he was supposed to die again when, when Pharaoh put out a, a death warrant against him, and he hasn't died yet. So maybe we should just leave this guy alone. But in verse 29, they bring they brought together the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron tells them everything. And they performed the signs, and the people believed. Everybody was so happy. Honestly, there had to be such joy and relief that God had heard them. Not only that he heard them, but he had sent help. Not only had he sent help, but he sent one of their own. And it literally brings them to their need, knees to in worship. I'm sure that there were so many people that spoke prophetic encouragement at this time. There had to be so much optimism that that they were gonna, you know, that the Pharaoh would would submit to the God of the Hebrews, that the the idols would would have no say over over Egypt anymore, that Yahweh would rule supreme, that that Israel would rule the nation of, of Egypt, that they would, you know, there had to be all, you just get really fired up in the presence of God when you're in worship. I've I've been around people like this. There's, there's no bad thing that could happen, and they love to talk about the overwhelming optimism. It's overwhelming that what God's presence will do. Everything's going to be great. Everything, I mean, that, that, oh, this is so exciting, Moses, thank you. I'm sure they're hugging him and kissing him, and they're singing to God, and they're quoting verses, and they're applying uh, the, the Scripture and their memories of, of, of Abraham and his teachings and, and how the nations would come uh, before God, how the Hebrews would take over the nations, that they were all going to go to the promised land, that all of these other nations were going to be over, uh, overrun by the Israelites. Like this, there's just so much going on in this meeting. And I'm sure they're thinking in tomorrow, our lives will never be the same. And that's where we will pick up next week on the Epic Narrative. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming, everyone. And again, I look forward to uh, hanging with you again soon. Don't go anywhere. We've got Bob Thoughts. All right. Some Bob Thoughts for today. Well, this, this, uh, this episode, like I said, is not one that you would probably hear preached very often. Or if you do, it's, it's done in a way in which 
you know, we did a different way, right? Most of the time, it's just another another manipulative opportunity for a lot of preachers to say, get your life right with God and follow through on the commitments that you've had or he'll kill you. And I don't see it that way anymore. And honestly, I hope even, even if you, even if all you did was consider the epic narratives perspective on this, then that's good for me. We don't have to agree, as you know. Uh, you may hear some birds and stuff in the background. I'm actually recording outside uh, just for what it's, just so you know, just in case you're in there going, wait, what is what, what am I hearing? That's what you're hearing, some birds and some crickets or something. Uh, but that whole night and how f- crazy and yet fun it was and just the opportunity that, that Moses took, like he didn't, he didn't look at this and say, "I'm getting, I'm getting oppression from the from the enemy. I'm going to turn around and go back." Like this must not be God's timing. Like when you know, when you know it's God, it's God. Like there's 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 no turning back, and that's part of the way that you check it. You know, I think a lot of times people are 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 a little hyper sensitive to quote the attack of the enemy. And any time they see it, they just fall apart and and step back as though as though somehow God's in competition with the enemy. There is no competition when it comes to the enemy. It's like saying that darkness and light, you know, can battle it out. When you when you turn on the lights, there's no battle. The light comes on, the darkness leaves. When the sun comes up, the darkness leaves. There's there's no wrestling match that goes on. Like honestly though, could you imagine? Like you turn on the lights and there's like this fighting back and forth. You're like, guys, I just want to read. Can you stop this? <laughs> anyway, hey, if uh, if you're listening and you think, wow, Bob's Bob's talking with a lisp. You're right, I am. Uh, if you want to help us out. I know a lot of you uh, already uh, are helping us out with the epic narrative. If you want to help me out personally, um, I had to have a couple teeth removed because of infection. My bone was all nasty and being eaten away, all that kind of stuff. We're trying. I, I need six thousand dollars to to do all that. I don't have insurance, as you guys know. I'm working um, and providing as best I can on these part with these part time jobs, but. You know, we have no insurance and no, no extra funds in the in the bank account. God's providing, and it's been He's been good, and maybe uh, maybe He wants you to help us as well. Uh, if you do, there's a link, uh, you know, in the description of the of the episode, uh, as well as my webpage, thebobswitzer.com, as well as my Facebook page and my Instagram page. Uh, you can just click the link. It's through the organization, Revive the Way. 100% of that money will come to me if you can help us out. Like I said, it's it's a $6,000 job. It was supposed to be $9,500. Uh, but after talking with the dentist and the surgeon, um, they knocked uh, almost three grand off uh, because I don't have insurance, which is another whole deal about insurance, right? How much, how much insurance companies are charged because you have insurance versus how much it actually costs. Anyways, it, I know, it's, a, it's an endless cycle and, uh, and not one that I, uh, I envy when it comes to these guys that 
have beautiful hearts and the desire to help people, and then they get they get wrapped up in some crazy stuff, mostly about finances. Anyways, if you can help us, that'd be awesome. Uh, and if you can continue supporting the Epic Narrative, that'd be great. Listen, if you have a Facebook page and you can promote the Epic Narrative, I would greatly appreciate that. Facebook, Instagram, uh, good grief. Just send a text to all your friends if you want. Just say, hey, check this check this uh, podcast out. It's worth a listen. Uh, he'll, you know, if nothing else, for new perspectives on old stories that could uh, really revolutionize your theology. All right, ladies and gentlemen, have yourself a great day. I'll see you next week on The Epic Narrative. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys. Bye.